tell the theological history of Jesus' birth. In two cases, his birth, Matthew and Luke tell the account of his birth and mostly his ministry of healing and teaching and, and rebuking demons and healing cripples and uh, interacting with people, just confronting the world. But most of all, building the story to the cross. So the climax of the whole Bible is the cross and the empty tomb. Everything's about it. We'll, we'll see that today. Today's a great example in Matthew 12. We're going to talk about that a little bit later as well, uh, about how when Jesus interacts here with some Pharisees, some religious rulers of the day, and interprets the Bible, we see how everything's about him. It's not a random list of precepts or laws or stories uh, collected over the centuries randomly without intention. God inspired it all to be about him. And so when we read about these passages and stories and narratives and psalms and laws and all of it, it's all about the cross. And so the early portions of these gospel accounts, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, but everything he's saying and doing is about the cross. He's building, he's like a steamrolling down the hill intentionally speaking and demonstrating things and acting in a way that's helping prepare the way for it. So we are to read the Bible then as though that's the case because that's the way that Jesus reads the Bible. That's the way the other New Testament authors read the Bible too, as though everything is at least a hint of him. Everything is a taste of him at least, if not an explicit reality of him. And so right now we're in Matthew 12, and this middle, middle section of Matthew we're calling declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. So like I talked about, declaring the fact that the kingdom of God is here. In other words, that Jesus is here to save the world from its sins. That's what the kingdom of God idea is all about. Jesus is the king, God is king, and he's bringing with him all these great ideas of kingdom that has filled the Old Testament and the world up to that point. Just saying that the perfect kingdom is here. I'm here to, like all the good kings of old did, destroy the enemies of God's people. In Jesus' case, this is destroying sin and death and Satan. He's also going to feed us like good kings do and give us a home and, and walls of protection like good kings do. So all these things he's doing spiritually and accomplishing spiritually for us now, in small ways, here in the early parts of this gospel account, the book of Matthew, but he's especially going to do that on the cross. He's declaring it. It's near. It's not fully here yet because until he dies on the cross for sins, it's not fully here. But he's also demonstrating through healing people physically that he's going to heal spiritually from sin on the cross. That's what demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom is all about. So he's not just here to heal a few people. He's here to heal the world of its sin. But he can demonstrate that too physically, and he does that in many beautiful ways uh, throughout these early parts of the gospel account. So that's the greater section we're in. Today's passage, though, is uh, Matthew 12, 11, or 1 to 14. And let me just say a couple of things about the context. Uh, Alan Burdett did a great job preaching last week uh, on verses 25 to 30. And I want to just read a couple of verses that help set up today's passage, because today's passage is kind of like a part two that unpacks this theological idea of Jesus as rest giver. And so I just want to read this invitation that Jesus gives. Listen to this. It's awesome. Well, I think one of the great invitations of all the scriptures. Now picture Jesus saying this, because he did, but picture this as an invitation from God. So not just speaking this to those who first heard it, but this is an invitation, a scriptural invitation that God gives all of us today. So Jesus says this in verses 28 and 29, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this is the invitation that sets up today's passage. And one of the things I want to point out here, it's a ton of things. Alan did a great job unpacking a lot of these details last week. But one thing I want to remind you of is this first thing he says. Come to me. He's inviting people to himself. 
one particular here we have to note. He's saying, I'm looking at a world that's heavy laden and burdened. They're weighted down by things. They're mistreated. They're abused. They're hurt. They're diseased. They have cancer. They're far from God. And I'm the answer. Come to me. So who can say this in other words except God alone? The God of heaven and earth. This is not just some dude walking the streets and saying, here's a better way to live, or here's a way you can live a little bit more peacefully with yourself. He's speaking much more aggressively than that. He's saying, come to me and I will give you rest. So he's not saying, I'll tell you how to get rest, though that's technically true, or I'll show you the path to get rest, though again, that's also technically true. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm the rest giver, come to me. So in this way, Christianity is distinct and special. God came to earth to draw people to himself, ultimately through his own death and resurrection. That's Christianity right there. God looks at the world. He doesn't shush away sin. Sin is very serious. It has to be judged. It has to be dealt with. But Christianity says God, through love, dealt with that. He came into the world and took judgment upon himself. He became one of us and took all that judgment upon himself on the cross out of love for us. So sin is not shushed aside, it's dealt with. So God can be just looking at us and forgiving messed up sinners. That's, how, that's the genius of the cross right there. It doesn't look away from sin, he looks right at it and says, I'm going to deal with it myself. And in that, I'm going to give rest for souls. In that, I'm going to give healing from sin. In that, I'm going to be their king. I'm going to bring order to their chaotic lives. All these things are words that Jesus himself gives over to himself and to God when he talks about the kingdom of God and other New Testament authors too in the Bible. Order, peace, salvation, healing, and in, in this context today, rest. So that's why he says not just rest here, but rest for souls. He didn't just come to give physical rest. He came to give a better rest. Rest for your souls. Rest in a spiritual, in a spiritual sense. So it's not a kind of rest achievable, achievable by us. It can only be given, as it says here, given by Jesus. It's something he has, it's his possession, and he can give it. But really what he's giving is himself. I'm the answer. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And in that, he instantly separates himself from all other spiritual guides of history. No one else ever spoke this way. Only God can speak this way. I'm the answer. Not telling you how it's over here. Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. And it's full of grace as well. Don't come to me on your terms when you've got your stuff together. Come to me when you're sinful and messy and wicked and weary. When you're tired of trying to measure up and I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. I'll give you rest for your souls. Out of grace. It's a gift. All we do, that's why Christians talk about faith so much and just belief. Just assent to the fact that God is God and we are not. He gives salvation. We do not earn it. He comes 100% this way. It's why it's so beautiful that Jesus is God. He became a human being. It's like in, in and of itself, Jesus is being fully God and fully man, a picture of God coming to our rescue. He came to us when we were dead, when we were in need, when we were not rested, and he gave us this rest. So, so that's the invitation. It's a beautiful invitation for all here that builds, it serves as the backdrop for what we're going to read today in Matthew 12. And today, like I said before, is a bit of a part two that develops this theological concept. So Jesus is saying, I give rest. And now he's going to unpack this by interacting with some Pharisees that take issue with the fact that he's not doing what they think he should be doing on a Sabbath day. So 
Let's read that to begin. So uh, I'll read it in full to begin. Matthew 12, 1 to 14 uh, is today's passage. If you want to follow along in your Bible or on, on your inserts or on screen, it'll all be on screen today too. All right. I got to lower this too or I'm going to be having a hard time. There we go. All right. Verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but for only the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Okay, uh, so... Let me go back here and just make sure the issue is clear. Because there's an issue, there's question, and Jesus responds amidst the issue. So the issue's got to be clear, or else you won't understand what's going on. So the issue here is that the disciples, Jesus' close followers, are with Jesus, and they appear to break the Sabbath uh, while they're walking through grain fields. Uh, then Jesus, after that, heals on the Sabbath in a synagogue, and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees here, if you don't know who they are, they are the, uh, one of the camps of the religious elite of the day. So they are the teachers. They are priestly figures, in a sense. They are Jewish leaders, spiritual leaders, and they're taking issue with this. They're so seeing this happen. They're following Jesus a bit from a distance because they're interested. They see it happen, and they take issue with both of these supposed Sabbath-breaking uh, events. So remember, this is the ongoing clash in the Gospels as well. So if you're newer to the Scriptures, newer to the Gospel accounts, this is really the, the clash, it's indicative of the big clash of the, of the gospel accounts. You might think the main enemy of the scriptures or the gospel accounts is the devil. And I think you'd be right. I think the main enemy is the devil. You could say the main enemy is sin and death and all of that. But really what the most ink is given over to here in the gospels is Jesus butting heads with good religious people. I want to make sure that's clear. Very good religious, law-abiding people, it's those people that Jesus butts heads most with in terms of what we read about most in the gospel account. So have that in mind as you read. I mean, these are, the Pharisees don't exist today, and a lot of us here, most of us probably, maybe all of us aren't Jewish, uh, but we have uh, still to read some of ourselves into this and say, this is a piece of me in terms of how I'm responding to Christ here. And so have this in mind as we read, and I think a lot of this will be a little bit more, at least immediately applicable. So, but at least have this in mind. This is the ongoing clash in the Gospels. Jesus and good religious people. And today it really heats up. You could say in one sense that today begins the procession to the cross. So already Jesus has been butting heads. He's already been rejected. He's already been a little bit conspired against to a degree. But 
Today, as you read here at the last bit, the last portion, the last verse in verse 14, it's clear. The Pharisees left and they conspired. They met with the intent to actually kill Jesus because of what he did here. So Jesus does something huge here. Uh, he does something, you could say, earth-shattering or epoch-shifting, something that religious people just could not stand to the, to the degree that they wanted to kill him. And at this point, they do. And this is all, remember, within Jesus' control. He came to die. He actually wants to die, uh, but in due time. He's fulfilling scripture. He's teaching. He's building the story to the cross. And so he doesn't want to die too quickly. He's orchestrating this whole thing. So as we're going to see a little bit later, it becomes clear that Jesus is actually saying things here, even in Matthew 12, that start to get the ball rolling because he knows that his time is, is drawing near. So, but again, Jesus does something massive today. On the one hand, what he's doing here brings biblical clarity to what the Sabbath really is. It brings healing to a person. It brings glory and restoration. It brings rest. Uh, but on the other hand, it brings great offense to many people, and it brings this ultimate death threat uh, to Jesus Christ. So something, something massive is happening today. And again, religious people, it's clear, just simply cannot handle uh, what he says today. And the issue has to do with the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, if you're unclear, was an Old Testament command grounded in the creation narratives. God called his people repeatedly throughout the Old Testament to rest on the seventh day as he did, as God did after working six days to create everything in the universe and everything in it. God rested and did not work on that last day. And God says, in light of that, I want you to do that as well. But Jesus here in Matthew 12, on a Sabbath, is walking through a grain field with his disciples, and they're hungry. They pick heads of grain, and they eat them, which constitutes as work, at least in the Pharisees' eyes, and thus the question here. So that, that's the big setup for today. And I'm just going to say right off the bat here as well, I'll come back to this for clarity in a little bit, uh, but it can be argued here from what we know of the Old Testament, from what uh, certain rules are that pertain to Sabbath keeping and so forth, that the disciples are actually not, keeping this, not, not breaking the Sabbath here, that it was okay for them to pick heads of grain. You can make an argument for that. Many commentators do in this passage, and, and that's fine. But here's the point. I don't think that's the main point, however. In fact, I think that Jesus, whatever we say about that, whether they're actually breaking the Sabbath or not, I think Jesus treats it as though they did break the Sabbath by the way he responds. It's like, he might be thinking in the back of his mind, yeah, they're, they're okay here, they're not breaking the Sabbath, but let's just suppose that they are. And he approaches the Old Testament as though that they are to make a greater point about the Sabbath, about himself, about how he fulfills it, and to confront their accusatory questioning. So have that in mind here. That's basically what's going on. I'll come back to that, like I said, uh, here in a few minutes. But, but that's the setup. So we had the background, we had the issue, and now we have Jesus' response. So we have individuals here that are questioning all of this. Sabbath breakers, how dare you? How can you be a prophet? Look at what they're doing. You're not raising question about this. They're working on the Sabbath. Then Jesus' response, which is basically, haven't you read the Bible before? which I love this because this is, I think, in a sense, the beginning of the jab. You know, Jesus is, it's hard to sense how much sarcasm's here, but I think a little bit. I think he's actually trying to jab a little bit and, and raise a little bit of a, a, a response by these individuals because saying, have you not read this in the scriptures or the Bible to a Pharisee is a bit like saying to a baseball player, have you, have you uh, seen one of these before? This is a bat. And you use it to hit the ball, you know, out of, out of the park. It's kind of like, it kind of comes with that feel, right? It's like the Pharisees, yes, we've read the Bible. We have basically have it memorized. So Jesus saying this, is, haven't you read the Bible? The scriptures before is a little bit like that. But, 
But what follows here is, is most important. He points them back to, he says, the Scriptures. And they wouldn't have said Old Testament during that day because there is no Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written, so nothing to contrast it with. But the Scriptures as they were written, as they existed then, he points them back to, essentially, the Old Testament. And he says this. I want to read this again. Look at his response. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law, speaking of the law, he's just talking about the Old Testament, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So it raises two things here, referring to a couple of Old Testament stories. The first is in 1 Samuel 21, when David, who wasn't king yet, uh, but he was, was being persecuted. He was fleeing for his life from King Saul. He wanted to kill him. It's a big story there, which I won't go into uh, today. But he's fleeing for his life, and who during that time took refuge in the house of God. So this would have been the tabernacle or the, the tent-like, not temporary, temple-like building during that time. Here it's called the house of God, which included a place of worship and an altar and a holy place and a priesthood and all of that. Uh, but he took refuge in it, where the bread of the presence was kept. And so Part of Israel's cultic law consisted of every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were cooked, and they were placed on the altar uh, for sacrifice. And it was a whole, so it was holy bread. There was common bread everyone could eat, and there was holy bread, and this holy bread was, was there. So it's likely all of this in 1 Samuel 21 is happening on the Sabbath too. We don't know that for sure, but it's likely that, that this is all happening on the Sabbath. So, but as the story goes, David and his companions were hungry, and they ate that bread, even though David's not a priest, and none of them were priests. It was unlawful for them to eat it. But they were hungry in this story, and they ate it, and there's no condemning of them in this story. The story just goes on. Then he references another scriptural passage that allowed for priests to work on and thusly profane the Sabbath. And Jesus makes it very clear they are being unlawful. They were profaning, but at the same time, they were guiltless. So what's going on, right? Kind of strange stories, but Jesus points out, I love that this is his response to it. It's just genius. Love it. But he's using the Bible to, to counter their, their concern. So the question is, why is he referencing these stories? A little bit obscure, right? These couple of passages, why is he referencing these things? And the answer is, it may be clear to a degree, because they ultimately have to do with him. These stories are ultimately about Jesus Christ. They're ultimately about his experience. So he's going back and saying, these things that happened here with David and the priests are a bit indicative or a bit of a foreshadowing of my experiences here now. And it's even clear, so basically saying, it's even clear here in the Old Testament how the Sabbath days were numbered. It's even clear here how the Sabbath law took a backseat to God's greater redemptive purposes. That, the, that a person for a time rose above the law, he's saying. Haven't you read that before? Did you ever wonder why that could be the case, or how that could be the case, or do you ever, in like one of your little Pharisee Bible studies, whatever it was, you know, do you ever wonder that? And he's raising question here. And so the answer then is that. It's relevant to the situation. Jesus is saying, haven't you, haven't you heard of this before? Someone rose above this law. A kingly figure engaged in priestly activity on the Sabbath. Not legal in the Old Testament, and they're not condemned for it. Haven't you heard that? And not just anyone, this is David. And we've talked a lot here in Matthew as well about how this resemblance idea, about how David is Jesus' ancestor. 
And he's not just, so Jesus is not just in, and what we mean by ancestor, Matthew begins with a long genealogy, tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham, the first Hebrew. Uh, but we talked about it then, how this is not just a bloodline issue when it says in the Bible that Jesus was an ancestor of these individuals in the Old Testament. It is that, but it's also a resemblance issue. Just like a son resembles his father, and maybe his grandfather, maybe his great-great-grandfather to a degree, there's also a resemblance issue here too. So we talked about that, how David's one of these key figures in the Bible who resembles Jesus a thousand years ahead of time. And so he's a shepherd like Jesus. He's a giant slayer like Jesus. He's a king like Jesus. He's a gentle king and a kind king like Jesus. And, and even the Old Testament, it, it links David a bit with God. It makes him God-like, not replacing God, of course, but being like a representative, like all kings were, a representative of God before before people. So, but in a nutshell, there's a lot we can say about this. And if you've been here for the series and know a little bit about these things, you know what I'm talking about. But David resembles Jesus. And so in this way, he's all these things. He's a deliverer. He's a king. He's a warrior. He's a giant slayer. He's a kind and gentle servant like Jesus would be later. And now there's this connection with being a Sabbath trumper as well. David was, at least for this one instance in the Old Testament, trumped the Sabbath. And Jesus is pointing back to this and saying, I am the son of David. I am the greater David. I am the ultimate David. I resemble him, and he resembled me beforehand. And there's a connection here. So if you read the scriptures, you would know that this was going to come. When the scriptures promise another greater David, you should have been looking for one who would do this David in the temple weird thing on the Sabbath where he ate the bread of the presence and rose above the law. You should look for that again. And now it's happening right before you. This David thing, again, is happening right before your eyes. The ultimate David's here. The ultimate priest is here. The ultimate temple is here. And a greater one at that. That's why in verse 6 it says, something greater than the temple is here. And infer David. Something better and greater than David is here. Something greater than the priesthood of the Old Testament is here. And even they, for a time, rose above this law in the Old Testament. How much more should I, the maker of the law, the speaker of the law, the creator of the law, I am here. You guys see this connection? He's using the scriptures to say, this is not brand new. Even if it was, I have the authority to do it. I'm the son of God, but this is not brand new. This kind of stuff happened even in the Old Testament, and it anticipated me, one who had come to be Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath then in its fullest sense is being fulfilled in me. I was always its goal. I'm here to replace and surpass it and actually be it among you. Let me read verses 7 and 8 here again as well. Then he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy. He's quoting the Old Testament here again as well. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let me back up here for a second and give a little bit more context to this. I presented in a nutshell uh, my view, many people's view on this. One uh, popular view on this. And I'll talk a little bit more about this here before all is said and done. But I want to give a different perspective on this greater Sabbath idea and a greater interpretational approach to this passage so that many of you maybe walked in here believing or you've heard it before or you will in the future to at least equip you to be prepared to handle it a little bit better and to just understand it maybe a little bit more in the future. At least that, if not just see a backdrop against which I'm holding forth what I think is a better interpretation of this passage. So some look at this, especially this last verse, this idea of the Son of Man, that's a word for Christ. Whenever Jesus says Son of Man, another Old Testament messianic word used in Daniel 7 to refer to Christ. 
When he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, uh, many people in this greater passage approach this and argue that this is not so much about breaking and surpassing the Sabbath, like we talked about this morning, but this is about reminding us that the Sabbath has its good intent. The disciples are not technically breaking the Sabbath here, as the argument goes. Yes, there are some small exceptions to the Sabbath law, it appears biblically, but in general, not working a day a week is good for our souls and bodies. And that's what the intent of the Sabbath was, and so God wants that for us. He even wants us as Christians to know this as well. So really what Jesus is doing here is he's noting a couple exceptions, but he's reinstituting the Sabbath by calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath and calling people to continue to rest physically, but maybe in a special sense uh, with him. So that's one perspective on it, but I think the problem with that perspective is I think it misses the main point with how Jesus uses the Old Testament. What I want to point you back in light of all of that, what I want to point you back to is look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, David did what was unlawful. He clearly uses that idea. He did something unlawful, and the priests profaned the Sabbath. They did something unlawful on the Sabbath, and they were both of them guiltless. It was okay for them to do. So going back to that perspective I just outlined, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, well, it's not really about being unlawful. Yes, it is about being unlawful. Yes, it is about rising above the law because it's exactly what's going on in these Old Testament stories. It's about profaning. It's about going beyond it. and It's about like something greater. Jesus says here in verse 6, it's about something greater coming into the world now. That's me, Jesus is saying, that kind of in a small sense came into the world in the Old Testament with David and with the priests. It was in a small, I was there in those stories. The prophets were linking onto that and saying, another one of those events is coming. The Sabbath is on, it's on borrowed time, the Sabbath law. But the one who created it is going to come to fulfill it and, and bring its intent to its fullest meaning and bring rest for souls into, into the world. So then what we have to do, I think, is at times anyway, separate unlawfulness from sinfulness. And we don't tend to do that in our minds. We tend to always put them 100% overlap, and, and we should it sometimes. Sometimes, of course, many times, actually, in the Scriptures, unlawfulness, like with the Ten Commandments, for example, or I guess Nine Commandments, scratch the Sabbath thing. That's, that would go against what I'm trying to say today. Uh, but anyway, um, is, uh, it's sinful, but sometimes they're separated. And it's clear here as well. David and the priests did something unlawful, but they were sinless when they did it. You guys see that? We have, it's a great example today of how sometimes we have to do that when we read the Bible as a story. Not just a list of random laws here, but as a story with a law for a time that was abrogated and surpassed by a person. Someone better to, to, to replace it. So, got to separate those two things or it's going to get really, really confusing fast. A couple of months ago, I just wanted to insert this story too. I think it's helpful. It was for me. A couple months ago, I read, I don't know if you guys read this, but Pope Francis made news uh, because he uh, washed two female inmates' feet. Did you guys see this? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you, good. Uh, and so it made news. I was reading about this, and I thought it was pretty cool. It's one of the cooler things I actually ever remember hearing about a pope doing in my life. That was really, really neat. Apparently, no pope has ever done this, ever, as far as we know, uh, washed a woman's feet. Uh, so I read this thing, and, um, you know, it, he made news because it's actually against papal law to include women in any type of liturgy at all. 
So he's kind of law-breaking here as he's doing it, and he's washing feet too. But get to the end of this, uh, you know, thing and read some comments, which you should never do, but I did anyway. And um, <laughs> law number, it's in the Bible somewhere, right? But um, <laughs> read these things, and, and some people are saying he's taking a lot of flack for it. I mean, the Pope can do whatever he wants, so there's that. <laughs> so you know, the Vatican's not actually denouncing him for this or anything. They can't. He's the Pope, you know. But um, they get behind him for it. But he's still taking a lot of flack because he's going against papal law and, and all this. But a lot of people are supporting him. They're saying, doesn't he actually look like Jesus here? He's, he's washing feet and he's moving towards a prisoner. You know, we're all spiritually imprisoned in our sin and he's embodying that. He's embodying the servant-hearted nature of Christ. All these comments about that. I remember thinking, yeah, I mean, right on. But here, here's what I thought. What I thought resembled Jesus to me the most was the law-breaking nature of Christ here. I thought, that just looked a lot like Jesus to me, that he's going beyond this law, kind of breaking this sort of silly law here. You know, not the Sabbath law is silly. It's not a one-to-one correlation here, but hang with me. You know, it's just like, that's what resembled Christ to me. You know, yeah, he's washing feet like Jesus did. He's ministering to the marginalized and the prisoners and the outcasts, the women, uh, like Jesus did in his day and all that that meant. Uh, but what really spoke to me was how the Pope was rising above this law here. And I think I thought right away, Matthew 12, it's exactly what Jesus did. That's the, that's the image, the, the aroma of Christ that, that I got in, in that passage. So anyway, but, oh yeah, there's a picture. Forgot I had that. Going back to this passage then. David and, his, David and his experiences in the Bible, King David, Old Testament, the priesthood, Old Testament, temple, Old Testament, the Sabbath law, Old Testament, are all being surpassed by someone and something greater. Jesus and his kingdom. And it's, oh, some of you guys just need permission to read the Bible that way. And, and Jesus himself gives it, to, gives it to us. This is how he's reading it. We need to emulate how he's approaching the scriptures here and saying there are things that had their place for a time, but they were replaced or surpassed by the one who wrote them and by the one who is always going to come into the world to fulfill them in himself and in what he does for us on the cross. He is the rest giver. He is the rest giver for our souls, because he brings our work to an end. He brings our, he brings our toil for righteousness, our working to appease God. He brings all that to an end because he says, I save you don't. Rest at my feet. Do nothing. Receive from me. Earn nothing. There's nothing you can give back to me, the Bible says. I give everything. I give rest. I give salvation. I give repentance. I even give the ability to have faith at all. It's all from me. I'm the creator, you're the dead created. And I'm here to call you from the tombs. He does everything. So it's full of grace to the brim. It's what Jesus is saying here. This is why he says in, going back to the chapter 11 passage that um, I mentioned earlier, this is why he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is not, noticed here, he does not point people back to a Sabbath law. I mean, for Jesus to be talking about rest and not to quote the Old Testament here about the Sabbath is radical. Radical. He's saying, I'm the one now that's going to give you rest. Not a law, me. I'm the ultimate Sabbath. See, it's a better rest. It's rest for the soul. You are no longer under the law. You are under me and what I do for you. It was all meant to give way to me. I am going to give you rest in a way that the Sabbath law never, ever, ever did. One of the ways we know that is Israel had to keep doing it. They had to keep repeating it. And they would have known in the repetition that it failed. But Jesus dies once and for all for sins. Not repeatedly, 
once for all, and he gives rest for souls once for all when you believe. It never, ever, ever has to be repeated because God is perfect and his work never fails. So if you believe today and you want rest for souls, if you want deliverance from your sins, that's it. It's, it's once for all completed, once for all done to the glory of God, and you are saved because the rest giver, the ultimate Sabbath, Jesus Christ, and his death for us on the cross never, ever, ever has to be repeated. But this is why he has that invitation. This is also why he says, mercy is greater than sacrifice. It's another way of saying Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus and what he does for us in showing us mercy is greater than sacrifice of the Old Te- or law of the Old Testament. Jesus is rising above it here. This, is, this isn't new. Jesus, again, Jesus is saying if you knew the Bible, you wouldn't be surprised by this. It's happened before. With David, it's happened before with the priests. Now I'm here, and I'm even better than they are. I'm, I'm the reason they exist at all. I'm their God. I'm, I'm the reality that casts the shadow back in the Old Testament and makes them. They're a shadow of me, but I'm the reality now. So Sabbath then is ultimately about him. And this is why I think the, this is part of the dramatic irony in this passage is you have Pharisees condemning people for not keeping the Sabbath law, but then you have the disciples actually walking with the Sabbath himself <laughs> and enjoying him. It's like, they've missed something, right? Something got lost along the way where they're like, how can you not keep the Sabbath? And disciples are actually walking with him. You know, so the the irony here is that the the Pharisees actually aren't truly keeping the Sabbath because they're not believing in him. They're not following him. They're not receiving rest from God himself, who's really the only one that can give rest, right? Who else can give rest but God alone? And so he gives gives it to us in, in the person and work of his son. All right, then, uh, finally, I'm not going to go through a lot of detail in this passage today, the the latter paragraph there, when he heals the man with the withered hand. But basically what Jesus is doing there is he's working out this theological principle right in front of them. Again, when he goes and he he touches the withered hand, it becomes, they say it's restored like the other, and the Pharisees get fired up about it. Basically what he's doing is he's exposing their heart, but he's demonstrating mercy over sacrifice really in action. In this sense, Jesus says, yeah, it is not lawful to heal. It, it, is, or it is lawful, sorry. It is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So he's acknowledging that to do good on, on the Sabbath. Uh, but for the Pharisees, still not good enough. In the Pharisees' case, it's actually, Jesus says the Bible says mercy over sacrifice. For the Pharisees, it was sacrifice and law over mercy. Right? They're saying it's better, heal, better here not to heal. Uh, so that you might keep, this, might keep this law. So they totally flipped it. So Jesus is saying, the Bible says this, Pharisees you, who claim to know the scriptures uh, just have forgotten that it said this in your, in your scriptures, my scriptures, my word. You've forgotten this and you flipped it. So in, in one sense, we have to cut these guys a little bit of slack. These are individuals who are not necessarily having cruel intent. We see that they do here in a minute. They're going to conspire against Christ, but they are individuals just trying to apply the Bible. It says, it says in the Old Testament, keep a Sabbath. And they're just trying to keep it. But uh, what they're doing along, along the, the way here is they're missing, they're missing the main point. They're, first of all, they're not really understanding their Bible right. There's a right way to read it in a wrong way, and they're reading it the wrong way. Uh, but in a bigger sense, for them, the law, things like don't keep a Sabbath, puffed them up. It gave them contempt for people like the disciples here who didn't keep it. Oh, how dare they? not keep the law like me. 
And so it's one of the great signs of legalism and religion in a person's heart is when you look at people and you think lesser of them because they're not as good as you. And these are things that Jesus flips on its head and confronts all over the place in the scriptures. And, and here's another place where they, they get the whole formula wrong. For them, it's law over mercy. But in practice, it's puffing up. It's not pointing them to God. So that's the big thing they miss. The law was always meant to point people, Israel, and the world watching to the creator. It's always the point. By imprisoning people under sin, I can't keep it. God save me. In a Sabbath sense, God give me rest because this law is not ultimately giving rest for my soul. Rest for the bodies, yes, but not rest for the soul. So that's what ultimately would have done. But for the the Pharisees, it just turned them inwards and made them proud and arrogant and self-justifying. They were literally seeking to sit with God's help, of course, and sacrifice his help, but seeking essentially to save themselves by applying the law. They were religious. They were not Christian. They were not godly. They were not a true Israelite in the ultimate sense, in that, in that they did not live by faith and dependence, dependence in God. And this is, this is selfishness really at its finest. It's what we all do in our sin. I mentioned that before. And seeing, our, seeing ourselves in the, the work of the Pharisees here, the or as Jesus says elsewhere, the yeast of the Pharisee. It's, it's this thing that, the, that seeps into the dough of our soul. This idea of working to make God happy. Working for rest. Working for satisfying God. It's the yeast of the Pharisees. And we're all in that in our sin. We self-justify. We love self more than others and more than God. And in that, we miss the Savior. The point of the law was to point people to God ultimately. In many different ways, granted. But we're talking about the Sabbath today. But do you see how that's the point, what Jesus is saying here? I'm the goal of the Sabbath. Do you see that or not? And for some of you, you've never heard that before. You felt like, for me, you felt that to be close to God means to keep the Sabbath. If I don't keep a Sabbath one day a week, God is angry, and I better work hard, maybe keep it twice next week or work hard the next week to keep it because that's how I get close to God. And what this Bible passage screams at you is, No, that's not how you get close to God. You get close to God through Jesus and the rest that he gives. It's not in a day. It's not in a system. It's not in a commandment. It's in God himself and what he does for you. He gives rest much more than this law ever could. So I'm getting ahead of myself. In conclusion, one thing first is just read the Bible the right way. The Jews did not read the Bible the right way. Yes, there is a right way to read it and there's a wrong way to read it. The Jews read it as though it were about God, but a lot about them as well. The Bible's not about you, ultimately. The Bible's about Jesus. Look at the way he interprets these passages. Have you ever read these passages before and wondered what in the world they're doing in the Bible? Or wondered, what's the meaning there? How do I apply that to my life? Jesus is saying, see me in them. When you read about David, see Christ. See ourselves as well, but only in the way that he keeps faith, not as though he's a hero to emulate. Christ here is imaged. He's saying, and in the priesthood as well, in the temple, in the bread of the presence, in the Sabbath law, in the sacrifice, in everything. Ellen mentioned the Exodus last week. Everything's about him. Everything. So we've got to read the Bible that way. Some of you never have before, and I invite you to do that. If that's foreign, it probably still is a bit. Talk to us. We'd love to give you some resources or just help you personally read a Bible in a Christocentric manner. Christ-centered manner, as though he is in every passage of the Bible, either whispered or held up explicitly to see. It's all about him. The Sabbath is all, all the time it was about him and preparing the way for him.
All right, then secondly, what keeps you close to God? Not, like I said before, not keeping the Sabbath, but walking with a Savior and receiving healing from him. Your goal every day should be to receive from Jesus Christ, not to keep a Sabbath. It should be your goal every day. Receiving rest from Jesus Christ through the word, through meditation on the cross and what he did for you, and the love of God demonstrated for you there. That is Sabbath rest at its finest. And that should be your goal. So Sabbath actually ultimately is not a one day a week thing. It's an every literal second of the day thing. <laughs> Get rest from him all the time. Keep the Sabbath in that way. He is your Sabbath rest. Yes, rest physically. This is not about saying don't rest physically. Please rest physically. We have a weekend. We call, but call them weekends. Call them vacations. Call it a day of rest. Don't call it a Sabbath. Just my two cents. I think that when we do that, we muddy the waters a bit, and we start to say this is actually a Sabbath rather than, you know, Jesus now is my Sabbath. So just call it, call it what it is. Just rest, physical rest. That's fine. Do that. Make it a discipline even. But, uh, but don't call it a Sabbath. Call Jesus a Sabbath. Colossians 2, 16 to 17, I want to mention this as well. Paul says this to the Colossian church full of Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. This is the key. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let anyone ever pass judgment on you for not keeping a Sabbath day physically, Paul says, because those were shadows, not realities. Shadows of Jesus, who was to come later, to actually be that Sabbath for us. Do you see? The New Testament actually says here, instantly we have at least nine commandments now, but even beyond, it goes, it goes beyond that. It says all the law was wrapped up in Christ. He bore the yoke. He walked perfectly for us before God. He died in our place. Now what we are under is what he has done for us, not what we do for God. Do you hear the good news in this? The yoke-lifting good news. It's incredible. This is why God comes into the world with good news here. This is incredible, heavy, deep theological stuff, but incredibly good news if you understand this. He gives rest. We don't give it to ourselves. This is how he goes past the law, like David before him and the priest before him. This is how he demonstrates it. So here's the ultimate Sabbath then to keep. I have one more thing to read again. I've read it two times. I'll read it a third. Listen to this invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And again, how is that rest given? On the cross. Because on the cross, we see screaming at us, God does everything and you do nothing. So sit at his feet and receive his blood. Receive salvation. Receive the fact that God died in your place to bear judgment against your sin for you. Rest at the highest level. This is what the Sabbath is always about. Actually, keep the Sabbath that way. That's how you ultimately keep it, now in a New Testamental sense. Keep it that way by running and clinging to the cross for your dear life in all that you do, getting in community to re-preach it to you because you'll, you'll, all of us, myself included, will forget these principles, maybe even when we leave here or tomorrow. Or the next week, we need to be reminded of the life raft that we have in him because we're all drowning. So we need that rest and we need to be in a community that re-gives it to us to be that conduit by which God re-gives it to us in the future. So true Sabbath, again, true Sabbath is Jesus over law. That is how he is the Lord or master or creator 
or fulfiller of the Sabbath. So let's pray. God, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for how you use the Old Testament to not just teach us how to read it, but to tell us more about the Sabbath law and more about yourself and what you've done for us on the cross. Jesus died to save us from our sins and give us soul rest. Hallelujah. Glory to God that the grace and love of God are demonstrated there. God, so I pray that as we respond here now uh, through communion and uh, through song, that you get glory, that you'd help us to meditate on these things and thank you. The Eucharist idea literally means to be being thankful. So being thankful for what this meal represents, your death and resurrection, ultimately your death, which, which is where sin is taken away from us and buried forever. So God, bless us now and help us just to leave here changed, uh, equipped, maybe with a new way of thinking. Uh, and as Paul says in Colossians 2, to not pass judgment on others or let others pass judgment on us for Sabbath keeping, but actually to keep the gospel, the, the gospel Sabbath uh, all our days. Help us and protect us from wandering from that, God, and forgive us for, for breaking that law because uh, we do it all the time. It's all about you, not about us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys. Well, we're going to celebrate communion here this morning, like I said before, a couple of us said. Uh, Jesus, right before he died on the cross, took up bread at the Last Supper, just hours before his death, and broke it, and uses the same word he used in Matthew 11 that I read earlier. He uses the word give. He said, this is my body given for you. It's my body given over for you. Then he held up a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for transgressions or for sins. And in that blood is the New Testament or New Covenant. So he's making it very clear what he's about to do on the cross. He's literally predicting the future, which is going to happen a few hours from there. And he's saying, this is all intentional. I'm going willingly. I could call a legion of angels to end all of it now. I'm God. But I'm willingly going because I love you and I love the world. And this is the only way to take away sin. That God, the perfect, the perfect man, the perfect God man would die for the sins of the world. So this is what he's doing. This is, this is wrapped up in it, the essence of the new covenant and new testament. So, uh, so glory to God. This is something we are to thank God for, and this is what he calls us to remember. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. When he says that, he wants the church, when they gather regularly, if not every time, to take bread and, and wine or juice or, you know, basically a small meal like this and remember Jesus, saying, he's my bread. He's my wine. This reminds me of his broken body. It reminds me of his shed blood. It reminds me that that's the only way now I have a covenant relationship with my God. I'm covenanted to him, almost like married to him, the Bible says, by what he has done for me. He is my true bridegroom and husband. He has initiated love with me. He's come the full measure here. So it's all about that. It's about remembrance. Like I said before, we, we're forgetful beings. We forget this, and we so quickly seek to self-justify like the Pharisees. And live, even as Christians, as though we're pretty, pretty hot stuff. We're pretty great. Uh, but we have to be reminded here, what the cross declares to us is that no, you're not, but God is. And he loves you. Look at what he's done. And so we receive it and eat it and partake of it as though it's our only spiritual nourishment to get us, to get us close to him now. So that's what I want you to do. I want to invite you guys to do that today. Uh, most of you are believers. For those of you that are not, we invite you during this time to become a Christian today. And some of you are on the cusp, and we want to implore you not to wait because God is patient with you, but he could come back tomorrow or before we're done here in the service. He could return, and then, if it, then it is too late. There's no more repentance. There's no more turning to God after that. That's the end of history, and that's when judgment occurs. So either we're judged 
on the basis of what Christ has done for us and covered with his blood and purified and wear that white robe that Revelation talks about or we're judged on our own merit. That's the way judgment's going to look. It's only two books in the end. The book of life, if our name's written in that, when we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we're, we're saved, we're purified, we're in. But if our name is just written in the, book of, the books that are open with all of our works in it, then we're judged based on what we've done in our life. And no one will enter the kingdom of God in those books. The Bible's clear. Let me invite you today to believe. He loves you. He wants to give you rest for your soul. He wants to take your sins away. So believe. Some of you may be here and you, think, you thought you were a Christian, but you realize, I don't think I am. I was living as though I, I could self-justify. Jesus was 80% for me, but the other 20% was me being a good person. And let me just say, if you think that way, you're actually not a Christian. You're not. The Bible says you have to come to the cross believing it's 100% God and 0% you. That's what faith is. Because if you don't, you're not actually depending on God to believe. You're depending a little, at least in part, on yourself. So that could be in your mind. You could actually struggle with that and not believe that, and that's, that's great. We all wrestle with that. But if you actually believe that, uh, then we, we just want to call you to, to come to the cross and rest and not work and believe that Jesus has died for your sins and it's all on him. It's, it's not on you for the first time. So, so anytime during this, if that's you, come on down front. I'll be up here as well as Spencer and some other individuals. We'd love to pray for you and talk to you more about communion. Uh, but we do practice uh, communion that is open. You don't have to be a member of this church to, to partake. But we do ask, as the Bible does, you've got to be a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, a true believer in the fact that he alone is your rescuer to partake today. So if that's you, wherever you are, visitor, but we just ask that you're a true Christian. So come on down during the worship set of songs, kind of how we do communion here. Come on down the middle aisle, and anytime during the worship set of four or five songs, break off some bread, pour a cup, and partake and remember and be thankful for Jesus and his love for you. And you can do it with someone, someone you came with, uh, or alone. It's a pretty open time of communion. Take it back in your seats or up front.